this is Kutsi Anaki, and welcome to another episode of Down to the Struts, the podcast about disability, design, and intersectionality. If you're a new listener, welcome. And if you've been listening for a while, welcome back. If you want to support the people, equipment, and resources that make this podcast possible, be sure to visit our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash down to the struts. You can become a supporting patron in our community and have access to exclusive content, cool merch, and a quarterly newsletter curated by me. If you're not able to contribute right now, that's fine too. You can listen, subscribe, and share the podcast with friends. We're so grateful for your continued support. Today, we'll listen in on my conversation with Douglas Cruz and Lisa Schur. Douglas Cruz is an economist and a professor at the Rutgers University School of Management and Labor Relations. Lisa Schur is a political scientist and professor at the Rutgers University School of Management and Labor Relations. Doug and Lisa virtually sat down with me to talk about the participation of disabled people in a critical aspect of our democracy, voting. According to a study that Doug and Lisa published for the Election Assistance Commission in 2021, One in nine disabled voters experienced challenges voting in the 2020 election. This is unsurprising considering that, according to a Government Accountability Office report from 2016, 83% of polling places in the United States were found to be inaccessible. Doug, Lisa, and I discussed more of the findings from their report, the history of voting access in the United States, and long-term strategies for making sure that disabled people can participate meaningfully in the democratic process. Okay, let's get down to it. Thank you so much, Doug and Lisa, for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Could you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what brought you to study disability and access to voting? Yes, Lisa and I are married. And actually, right uh, two days before our uh, second anniversary, we were hit by a drunk driver going about 100 miles an hour. And when we were visiting my parents in Omaha, that gave me a spinal cord injury and put me in a wheelchair. I was already a uh, professor at Rutgers at that point, but then I returned to Rutgers as a professor in a wheelchair. And that obviously opened our eyes to a lot of disability issues in a lot of ways as we made, as we tried to cope with all the demands that the newfound disability puts on one. Rutgers was good at accommodating me. At, at that point, you know, it opened our eyes to uh, lots of the, I'm an economist, to lots of the economic issues, but also the political issues. Lisa was just starting her dissertation in political science. I had finished my coursework, so I was about to write my dissertation, and I had a whole different topic um, in mind. But then when we started experiencing what it's like to navigate life um, with someone with a a disability and and the whole discrimination that was going on, and then in July of 1990, the ADA was passed, and I thought, wow, this is an amazing opportunity to look at political activism among people with disabilities. So I changed topics and that's what I wrote my dissertation on. I I interviewed uh, 64 
people with spinal cord injuries and, and looked at their political views and what led them to become activists or what discouraged them from political activities. So, yeah. and, and since that time, we've done a lot of work on yep. primarily on disability and employment issues and disability and uh, political participation, yep. vo voter turnout, uh, which is what uh, our recent report to the Election Assistance Commission is all about. Thank you for sharing that story. And it, it feels so personal. And it's it's amazing how you've been able to take your personal experience and and use it to produce really important academic work that has can shape you know policy. So to that end, we're here today to talk about access to voting. And as you just mentioned, Doug, you, you produced a report, Election Access Commission, and it focused on the sort of experience of people with disabilities who were voting in the 2020 election. So can you can the two of you talk a little bit about the findings of that report? So we had done an earlier report also commissioned by the Election Assistance Commission in 2012. And at that point, we we're asking people what, kind, what, what it was like to vote and what kind of difficulties they had. And at that point, 30% of people who voted in a polling place said that they had experienced difficulties with disabilities. with disabilities. Yeah, I'm sorry, with disabilities. And then in 2020, we were looking at people who voted in polling places and people who voted by mail. And we found that the people with disabilities who voted in polling places, the difficulties had dropped to 18%. So that was a significant shift. And we estimate that about half of that drop, the greater ease in voting, was actually due to improvements in polling places. And half was due to the fact that more people with disabilities and people without disabilities too voted by mail in 2020 during the pandemic. But there's good news there because yes, polling places have become more accessible. Um, that being said, still one in nine people in a polling place experienced difficulties voting and 5% of people who voted by mail with disabilities experienced difficulties. So there's still there's still a lot of work to be done. Great, and can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, the sort of methods you use to collect the, the data? And We had uh, done a previous survey in 2012 that was also sponsored by the Election Assistance Commission, where we surveyed 3,000 people across the country, two thirds of them, 2,000 of them, with disabilities and 1,000 without disabilities. And this was a representative sample done by a well-established survey firm so we can get some a good sense of what uh, was really going on there in the, in the disability population. And then we, re we repeated that survey, uh, the post-election survey in 2020, asking a variety of questions about the voting experience, particularly about any difficulties that people had with voting. Um, and that was done by the same survey firm and it was also a similarly large sample. It was 2,600 this time instead of 3,000 overall. But again, oversampled people with disabilities uh, so that we could be more confident about their, their experiences. And I'll let Lisa describe some of, the, some of the results. Well, compared to 2020, far fewer people with disabilities said that they were experienced difficulties in voting. So in 2012, 30% of people who voted in a, pro a polling place said that they experienced difficulties. And then that dropped to 18% of people with disabilities in 2020. But still, one in nine people with disabilities said that they had difficulties voting. And that's across both voting in polling places and voting by mail. 
And could you describe and provide some color to what some of those barriers were that people identified? It was everything from finding or getting to the polling place, getting into the polling place, whether they understood how to vote, whether they could read or see the ballot, whether they could operate voting machinery. So it was a variety of, of different questions about that. And actually, Lisa mentioned the, uh, the, the improvement in polling place accessibility. The biggest improvement actually was in uh, drops in the number of people who said they had difficulty reading or seeing the ballot and or, or difficulty understanding how to vote. So that's a real, uh, real sign of progress. Still, people with disabilities are more likely than people without disabilities to experience problems. So that's a, that, that, that's a big problem still. Yeah. And I know as a, as a, as a blind person myself, one of our biggest challenges in the blind community is, is the idea of being able to vote independently without having to have someone read the ballot to you. One of the things I experienced voting in the 2016 election in Washington, D.C. was that, you know, I showed up and they had like a machine, but I hadn't brought headphones and I had no way of like using the voice technology that was on the machine. And then there was like a whole run around and my ballot got lost and I almost filed a blank ballot and it was just there was like it was very confusing and there was very little facility it was a very that was the only time I, I voted in person in DC because obviously in 2020 I chose to vote by mail and even then I had to have my partner complete my ballot. I'm glad you described yes. that we, we do we based our measure of disability on census questions six census questions and we added a seventh cleanup question to capture other types of disability those those questions allow us to measure major types of impairments. So we break out the results. And one of the impairments is vision impairment. We do find that the people who had the most difficulty voting, the highest rate of difficulties voting, were those with vision impairments or cognitive impairments. Yeah. And some people say that, well, we're just going to switch to all vote by mail voting, and that'll solve all the problems. Well, no, it clearly is not a solution for a lot of people who have vision impairments. It's important to be able to vote independently and confidentially. And that can be a real problem. <laughs> we did find that among people yeah. with disabilities who voted by mail in general, 5% yeah. or one out of 20 said they had difficulties. But among people with vision impairments who voted by mail, 22%. So you know, almost, almost a fourth of people with vision impairments had some type of difficulty in voting by mail. Yeah, and I suspect that's because some states, for example, like Maryland, and I believe the state of Virginia is going to be implementing something like this as well, they allowed you to complete your ballot electronically using your accessible your accessibility technology, so screen reader or magnifier or what have you, print it, sign it, mail it. But I don't think that's the practice in most states. So the vote by mail is still a paper ballot as it was, for example, in Washington, D.C. when I voted. Or I think in D.C., I should say, you could call their, their accessibility office in their uh, elections department and facilitate getting an electronic ballot, but the process was rather cumbersome to do that and time consuming. Well, we, we asked people what method they wanted to use to vote in the future. And one of the options was electronic ballot delivery. And about 5% of people said that was the way they preferred to cast their ballot. I think some of that reflects the fact that it's not widely available yet. And probably a lot of people don't know about it. Right. Exactly. And how how have these results sort of compared across time? So, for example, what was the state of affairs for 
accessibility in voting prior to the ADA versus after the ADA. And then, you know, you described a little bit the comparison between 2012 and 2020. How has that experience for disabled voters evolved over time? We really don't know much about the voting experience of people with disabilities uh, before the ADA. There, there just really aren't any data. There weren't sur- surveys done on this. There were not explicit protections for people with disabilities in polling places at that time. The ADA provided some, but in a very general way. It wasn't until the uh, 2002 Help America Vote Act, HAVA, that there was explicit requirements that every polling place has to be accessible, uh, every polling place has to have an accessible voting machine for people with vision impairments in particular. So there's been just a tremendous increase in the legal uh, standards there. However, many polling places are not uh, accessible. In 2016, the, the U.S. Government Accountability Office did a study of polling places. They actually went out to polling places a broad sample and found that 83%, about five out of six of them, still had potential impediments to voting by people with disabilities, which is just remarkable. This was uh, what, you know, 14 years after after HAVA was passed, um, that there was still 83% of them had potential impediments. So there are obviously ongoing problems. I, I didn't realize that figure. That's astounding and quite shocking, I would say. And I mean, layer on top of that in 2020, the challenges of the pandemic. And I'm interested to see how, to what extent that came up. I under, I remember reading a story about, I believe it was in Alabama, um, because of social distancing and what have you, people in wheelchairs who couldn't access the buildings weren't able to do curbside voting um, and things like that. So yeah, I'm curious about, given that state of affairs, what the effects of the pandemic were layered on top of just the basic accessibility issues that you just described. Well, interestingly, we really didn't know what to expect going into our survey, whether the pandemic in 2020 would create all kinds of uh, additional problems for people with disabilities. Interestingly, it probably, if anything, decreased the problems given the great expansion of voting by mail options that, uh, you know, for example, in in New Jersey, everyone received a ballot in the mail. I voted uh, for the first time since college days, I voted by mail. And a number number of states expanded vote by mail options. The rate of difficulty is lower for, for everyone except those with vision impairments. The rate of difficulty is lower in voting by mail than voting in a polling place. So if anything, the pandemic uh, probably helped the situation for people with disabilities. We won't know until next month. The Census Bureau is going to be releasing its big uh, data data file on voter turnout. And, and we're going to be, of course, jumping on that and doing analysis of it. We won't really know until that comes out how the turnout, the relative turnout of people with disabilities um, compares between 2020 and earlier years. In earlier years, there was always a pretty consistent gap of between six and seven percentage points. It may have closed this last year due due to that, in part to the great expansion of male voting options. That will be really interesting to see once that data comes out. So we're recording this now in March. So hopefully by later in the year, in a, in a month or so, we'll, we'll be able to see what that looks like. That's really interesting. What are the key things you would want election officials, policymakers, lawmakers to take away from your report from 2020? Well, we're not policymakers, <laughs> but um, I think the, the broad takeaway is that the more options there are, the better for people with disabilities. 
the fact that there was more early voting uh, in 2020, I'm sorry, and mail-in options were, were easier, that combined with greater polling place accessibility, all of that helps. So I would just encourage policymakers to keep those options available for people and to expand them and not to try and retract them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And what we're seeing in, in some states is, is a pulling back of that variety in terms of options and modes of voting, you know, some of that really has to do with, you know, in some instances, a lot of attempts at sort of voter suppression, particularly for African-American voters. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about, like, if you've seen anything in your studies about the intersection between race and, and disability and access to voting and how those two things kind of interact to create barriers for people. We, we did look at that that wasn't the main focus of the study, but we did look at that and we found that black voters with disabilities waited online twice as long as white voters with disabilities. So the average for black voters with disabilities was 45 minutes, which is a long time. I mean, something waiting, standing in line and waiting, which is inconvenient for everybody, can really just be impossible for a lot of people who have difficulty standing for long periods of time, for example. So this is a real problem. Yeah. And then if you layer on top of that tactics that are often used to suppress voting for people of color and then the barriers of disability, I mean, you have a real challenge on your hands, I think, from an election administration standpoint. Um, so in your ideal sort of world, what, what do you want to see for voting for disabled people in the future? What do you imagine in that future? It, it, it's a great question. After the great expansion of mail-in voting this last year, and now we have five states that do all vote by mail, you know, one, one might think, well, the future is all vote by mail. You know, we're, we're all going to be voting by mail in the future. One of the questions we asked at the end of the survey was, and we asked this of both mm -hmm. voters and non-voters, we asked, if you wanted to vote in the next election, how would you prefer to cast your vote? And we gave five options. And interestingly, the top option for both people with and without disabilities was uh, voting in a polling place. We, we found 49%, uh, almost half of people with disabilities said they would prefer to vote in a polling place. And the, the next most popular there was voting by mail uh, was one third. So half of people with disabilities want to vote in a polling place, 60%, there are three out of five of people without disabilities said they want to vote in a polling place. And what's really interesting about that is that even though voting by mail is, is easier for most people, particularly people with disabilities, with mobility impairments and so forth, nonetheless, half of them still want to go to a polling place. And we found some uh, interesting confirmation of that in, in some focus groups we did. Do you want to describe yeah. that, Lisa? So we did uh, several focus groups before we released the, the survey mm -hmm. because we wanted to refine our questions and make sure that you know we weren't missing any important questions. And a number of people in the focus groups, these were people with disabilities who had voted in the primaries, a number of people spontaneously said, it's really important for me to vote in person and to show up and vote with my fellow citizens and to be visible, to be seen mm -hmm. that, yes, I'm a person with a disability and I'm voting at a polling place, and this is an important part of democracy. Just, just like everyone else. Just like everyone else. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair myself, and I, and I understand that. I felt that as well. I'm kind of proud when I have gone to polling places and, uh, and have people see me there in my wheelchair going in to vote like everyone else. Um, th there is a the political scientist called this uh, 
you know, demonstrative aspect of, of voting. It's it's not just marking your preference you know, in an isolation on the ballot. It's participating in an act with other members of the community. You know, when you asked about uh, what what's the future of voting look like, the future of voting, as Lisa said, should include lots of options. But it should voting in a polling place is one of those important options. People still want, uh, even after the pandemic. That's really interesting. And I, as a, as a blind person myself, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, even though my experience of voting in 2016 was a little bit stressful and a little bit challenging and I experienced barriers, that moment of you know submitting my, my completed ballot and casting my vote and being with other people in that act of democracy was really powerful and really yeah. important. And I think, yes, I think options are great. I mean, as I was someone who was not comfortable during the pandemic showing up at my polling place at that time. And so having the option to mail in my ballot, albeit not having been able to complete it independently or confidentially, but being able to do that was really, was really important. And I'm sure it is really important for people with, you know, who, who have mobility issues, who, um, or disabilities who would prefer to, you know, vote by mail all the time. So, cause you know, everyone's sort of different in their preferences, but yeah, having options, but also preserving and making sure that that polling place access is, is really paramount and important is, is really key. I think. You know, Lisa said that, uh, our main advice to policymakers is to keep a lot of options. And that really reflects the variation in the disability population, all, all mm -hmm. kinds of different disabilities, different kinds of challenges and limitations people face. Well, when you've got that tremendous variation, then having a greater number of options maximizes the chance that someone with a particular limitation will be able to uh, find the option that works for them. So it's just kind of basic basic math, as it were, that, that, that you increase the chance that uh, people will find a workable option if you have more, more options available. Yeah, I just want to go back for a second to something you, you had mentioned, um, just, just about the importance of, for some people, of voting in person or polling place. And I think part of it is that historically, people with disabilities have been invisible. They've been yeah. isolated. They've been marginalized. And so it's important to like say, no, I'm visible, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm not other, I'm part of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Did you notice any states that were doing this particularly well? Like if you analyzed your data by state where there was like a higher rate of satisfaction or access? Actually, no, that, that's a great question. Several people have asked us about this. Our, our sample is about 2,600 and we can't really break it down by state uh, to get uh, meaningful samples within each state. When the Census Bureau data come out next month, they have a sample of 90,000. Well, with those data, we can look at voter turnout, really just at voter turnout and how people voted, you know, by mail or polling place. They don't have all of our rich data on uh, the voting experience, difficulties encountering all that kind of stuff. But they do have the, the a very large sample with that basic voter turnout data. And then and we'll be using that to do state-by-state -state comparisons. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm looking forward to the next round of your analysis. <laughs> when would you anticipate that to be released? In 2018, they released the date on April 23rd of the following year. So April 23rd of this year is our best guess. And of course, we'll jump on it and yeah. produce a report in, in just a few days, I, I imagine. I mean, one thing we'll be able to do also is to look at states and look at what kind of systems they used or what kind of procedures they used. So like New Jersey, everybody got a mail-in ballot and you could use it or not use it as you as you chose. 
and other states still made it more difficult for people to get them. So we might be able to do some comparisons. Yeah, the, the, the most restrictive yeah. states, states like Texas, Texas are, yeah. they have an excuse required system where you can only get a mail ballot if you have a, an excuse such as having a documented disability or some other reason like that. We, we found in past research, we and others have found that in excuse required states, the turnout of people with disabilities is especially low. And that's in part because there's a stigma to still a stigma to having disability. People don't want to mark on a on an official government form, yes, I have a disability. There's a reluctance to do that, I think. Yeah, and the other the other thing that can really decrease turnout is if you have to fill out this request for every election. So you can't just say, I want to vote by mail going forward. You have to, you know, for this, for the primaries, you have to say that, and then you'd have to send something in for the next election. And and so forth. And that can can limit turnout as well. So, so there's some states that, that have yeah. per permanent no excuse ballots. Right. So you just um, say, I is, want to vote by mail. I'm which sorry. is the best system. Yeah. 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 Ah, so you only have to mark that one time. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, I'm really looking forward to your analysis of the Census Bureau data, and I'll be sure to share it with our listeners so they can they can check out your analysis and, and what your thoughts are about that. But this has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me. That's been great. Thanks. Yes, absolutely. We're very happy to talk. And, and I just wanted to mention briefly that, uh, you know, obviously Lisa and I have a lot of experience with disability in our own lives. We're very concerned about you know, ensuring that people with disabilities have the right to vote. Our research, our research is very objective. It's very uh, scientific. It, it's very, you know, we, we provide numbers that uh, do not reflect our, show what the numbers are, just the facts, ma'am. But we want to use those results to help promote the idea that uh, uh, people with disabilities uh, should have full access to voting, just like everyone else should have full access to voting. We do very objective research. But we're with, pretty with, passionate about this. <laughs> about ensuring everyone can participate yeah. in democracy. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Oh, thanks. Thanks Thank to you. see you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Down to the Struts. This podcast would not be possible without the energy and creativity of Avery Annapole and Alana Nevins. If you want to support our work, become a patron by visiting www.patreon.com slash down to the struts. Also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at down to the struts. And you can also join our Facebook group at Down to the Struts podcast and become part of our growing community. Thanks as always for listening and stay tuned for our next episode coming into your feeds on Tuesday, August 11th, so we can get back down to it.